Alrighty. Remember to put my microphone on this week. Last week I had it in my pocket. So. Uh. Well, I want to thank everybody that uh, helped out last night with the dinner, getting ready, and a lot of preparation went into that. And Ken, thank you so much for cooking that meat. It was wonderful. And everybody else that participated, I think everybody had a wonderful time. And it's good to see people come who usually don't attend our church because they can see what genuine fellowship looks like and what true service to Christ looks like. And, and that's always, always a good picture of who really Christ is. Well, we're in our 35th message here in First Thessalonians, trying to close out chapter 5. I think next week will be the last message, and then we'll have a couple Christmas messages. And then after the first of the year, you can start reading Second Thessalonians. We're going to just plow on right through that one, too. So... But last week we looked at verse 19 and uh, it dealt with our response to God via the Holy Spirit. And verse 19 said, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And that's a responsibility for believers. And if you missed that message, you can download the, we have a free app that you can download in your app store. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. Just download it. Look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City and put that on your phone and you can get all the messages. And the outlines as well are, are featured on there as well so you can catch up if you need to catch up. But today we're moving on, and I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word since you've been sitting for a little bit. And I just want to read verses 20 to 22, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 to 22, quick little commands here that Paul's giving them, remember. And he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of of evil. Father, we ask you to bless your word now to our hearts and our minds, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in so many ways, as I've been studying this, you realize that the Bible is, is truly, it's an amazing book, is it not? Just truly amazing. And a couple of illustrations brought that to my mind as I was reading through some commentaries this this past week and listening to different messages and, 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 and one teacher shared that many, several years ago, there was an Israeli businessman and his name was Zail Fetterman and he began to look over in kind of in depth the scripture that talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And as he read the, the scriptures, He saw this verse. He says, And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And this Israeli businessman guessed that, you know what? Such smoke and such fire might indicate that there's some form of underground gas. And where there's underground gas, he guessed there must also be oil. Well, he was right. It's amazing. In 1953, Israel's first oil well went into operation somewhere near the ancient site of Sodom and Gomorrah. Crazy. I mean, you can't write this stuff, right? Doesn't stop there. You've heard of Standard Oil Company, right? Back in the day. Well, they discovered oil, and they've been operating oil wells in Egypt for many years, a long time. And it's generally known that they do that, but it's not generally known why they do that. Why Egypt? Why did they decide this? Um, 
it was said that one of the directors of the Standard Oil Company happened to be reading the second chapter of Exodus. <laughs> and as he read through that, a verse caught his attention. And the verse states that the ark of bulrushes, which the mother of Moses made for her child, a little basket, right? It says this, was daubed with slime and with pitch. And this oil director on the, on the board read that, and he, he reasoned that if there was pitch there, there must be oil. And if there was oil there in Moses' time, maybe it's still there. And so the company sent out Charles Witchett, a geologist and oil expert, to make investigations with the result that oil was, in fact, discovered. It's amazing. One more. I like this one the best. The World Christian Digest recorded this, and it was talking about a Haifa policeman, and he knew his Bible very well. And he was on the trail of a gang of smugglers in his country, and they were very inconspicuous because they didn't travel around in vehicles. They used carts pulled by donkeys to get through the checkpoints and all that. People, oh, they never check that. You know, I'm sure they're not smuggling anything. And so the police managed to capture some of these carts with the donkeys. But unfortunately, the smugglers got away from them. And, but he kept the donkeys, and he put them in a barn for a couple days. And because he knew what the scriptures said, he, he didn't feed them anything. And then he let the donkeys go. And then he followed them. And guess where they led them? <laughs> right to the smugglers' hideout. <laughs> Because he knew Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 says, The ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib. I, it's, it's amazing. You, you really, when you look at the Word of God, it's an amazing book. And most people that say, Well, I don't believe the Bible, they've never read the Bible. They really haven't. The Bible is marvelous. The Bible is supreme. It's unequaled in so many different ways. No book even ever even comes close to its excellence. Um, in one sermon, John MacArthur said this. He says, I think maybe somebody should put a warning label on the Bible. Maybe it ought to read like this. This is what he says. Warning, this book is habit-forming. Regular use causes loss of anxiety, decreased appetite for lying, cheating, lusting, hating, and stealing. Symptoms of condition are increased feelings of joy, peace, love, and compassion. I mean, who wouldn't want that, Right? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he comes to verse 20. When he tells us, do not despise prophecies. He has in mind the revelation of God. He has in mind the word of God. Whether it's spoken, as it was back in his time, as divine revelation, because the Bible wasn't completed yet, the canon of Scripture wasn't finished, so you still had prophets coming up and they were being empowered by the Spirit of God to prophesy the Word of God, and they would write it down, and that's how we got a lot of the New Testament. Or whether it's written down or spoken already. We should not despise prophecies. This verse 20 is really part of a list of basic Christian uh, principles or commands for living. And we've looked back all the way back when he was talking about the relationship between the sheep and the shepherds, remember? And the shepherds and the sheep, and then the sheep and the sheep. 
And now he's talking about the relationship between the, sh- the sheep and the great shepherd, who is Christ, none other than Christ the Lord, the supreme shepherd. And so he starts this all the way back in verse 16 of chapter 5. And he says there, he kind of rips off three quick ones. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. That should be in our hearts. And we explained how to do that. If you're wondering how, you can go back and listen to the messages. And last week, we looked at verse 19, where he says, do not quench the spirit. But now, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. And just as a footnote, when you, when you see them listed there in our text, it doesn't really do justice to the original language because our English language kind of mixes up the intent. And so if you were to read these literally in the Greek language, here's what they would say. The spirit do not quench. Prophecies do not despise. Everything test. What is good, hold fast. Evil, stay away from it. Abstain from it. So the emphasis in the original language is on the subject. And in our English minds, we reverse it. (laughs) Uh, And it causes a very forceful statement in the original language for us to look at. And so this first one, the responsibility of responding to God's word here, number two, um, do not despise prophecies. Jesus summarized this very clearly when he spoke about the word of God very highly. He says, man shall not live by what? bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. He's quoting the Old Testament there, Deuteronomy 8, 3. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he's writing this young church. Remember, they're a young church, a couple months old. They didn't have the opportunity to, you know, spend years and years and years in Bible classes and Sunday school classes. No, this is a brand new church. And Paul stayed there with them several months to help them get started and taught them basically everything he could in that time frame. But because of some of the persecution that was threatening their lives, they had to leave. And so he wants them to know, do not despise prophecies. This is exactly what he's warning them about. That word despise there, it carries a strong meaning. It says basically to consider as absolutely nothing. That's what it means to despise something. You've heard it. You know, I despise you. That means I don't consider you worth anything. It, it means to treat with contempt. It means to look down upon. Now, I don't know about you, but when I asked myself this past week, huh, do, do, do people really despise the word of God? <laughs> we definitely see it happening. We see it happening not only outside the church, we see it happening inside the church in a big-time way. I always say you can always tell a church's attitude and belief about the Word of God by how they handle the plan of their service. What's their priorities? What do they do in their service? Some churches have... uh, you know, maybe out of an hour they'll have a greater portion of the service dedicated to all sorts of things. And they're not bad things, right? They're not bad things. It's not bad to have, you know, singing. We just sang. It's not bad to have some announcements or, you know, some churches have skits and dramas and art and videos playing all the time, and slideshows, concerts even, all the stuff, right? The problem is those same churches 
somewhere along the line, mixed with all this other stuff, out of an hour, maybe they have a 60-minute service, maybe they'll give their pastor 10 minutes. Well, pastor, come on up and share what's on your heart today. <laughs> 10 minutes, really? It shows you where they put the emphasis. It shows you what's important to them. I mean, I got to watch pastor or services online for a couple of weeks, three or four weeks when we didn't have church back in the COVID days. And uh, I was home and was watching different streams and stuff. And, and I was amazed sometimes. I mean, these are good, good speakers. They probably speak for an hour and keep your attention. But due to everything else they have going on in their service, maybe they get 15 minutes. And I thought, wow, that, that, that is just alarming to me. Somebody mixed up their priorities, to say the least. And so Paul is telling the Thessalonians here, this young church of newly converted souls, brand new to the Lord, do not despise, don't look down upon, don't treat with contempt the word of God. Now, look at this word, prophecies, because it's important we understand what this word means, prophecies, prophetias, it it, it refers to both the spoken word of God and the written word of God. The verb form means to speak or proclaim publicly. Thus, the the modern New Testament, the gift of prophecy is the the spirit-empowered skill of publicly proclaiming God's word. That's what it is. See, we think of prophecy, oh, somebody's telling the future, or somebody's... No, that's not what it means. It means to simply proclaim publicly. And in this context, it's speaking of the Word of God. The New Testament prophets sometimes delivered a brand new revelation. They never heard, no one ever heard it before. We saw that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Remember when we were talking about the rapture? And Paul said, hey man, I got a mystery to share with you that nobody's ever heard before. And he told them that he was going to come back, the Lord was going to come back in the clouds and take the church away. That was brand new. That was new revelation. That was hot off the Holy Spirit's press. And and Paul willingly shared that. But at other times, and mostly throughout the New Testament, it was reiterating what God had already said. This is what happens today. It's a, a divine proclamation of what was already recorded. And so the, the, the apostles in the New Testament and their associates, they, they, re, they received, they spoke, they wrote the text of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament times, prophecy was routinely the proclamation of God's previously revealed words, whether they're quoting the Old Testament or the New Testament that was already written. Um, Look over at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, because a lot of times what happens is people take these commands like um, the first one dealing with the Holy Spirit, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And our charismatic friends love to take that verse and say, oh, well, if you you say tongues isn't for today and, and... God is no longer giving people the divine miracle of healing. Not that God doesn't heal. But what I'm saying is in the New Testament, God gifted certain individuals. They could walk around town and just heal people. 
Didn't matter what their faith was. Didn't matter. They, they were healing people because God gave them that power to do that. We don't see that today. We see a lot of people saying they have that power. But when you check them out, they're all frauds. They're all after one thing, your wallet. But here uh, in Romans 12, 9, this is interesting because they'll do the same thing with this command, don't despise prophecies. Because a lot of people in the church today, they think of prophecies as some getting up and saying something that God has never said before. It was that in the Bible, but that's no longer around because the canon of Scripture is closed. Um, But in Romans 12, look at verse 6. Paul's talking about this. He's talking about different gifts, having having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then he starts to give examples of the gift. And look at the first one. He says, if prophecy, he says, in proportion to our faith. Some translations read that if prophecy um, in proportion to his faith. Talking about the person that uses the gift of prophecy. No, it's the faith, literally, in the original language. It's talking about the Christian faith. In other words, when you prophesy, it better be in proportion, or the the Greek word there is anagalus. It's it's, it's something that it basically agrees with itself. Analogia. The Reformers used to say analogia scriptura, which means scripture always agrees with itself. If you want to disprove the Bible, just show me contradictions in the Bible. That clearly, not because of some situation or something, but clearly the Bible says one thing here and then it says something totally opposite over here and they totally disagree. That that would disqualify the Bible as being the Word of God. But it doesn't do that. Matter of fact, I remember hearing of a millionaire, billionaire, whatever, he had a long-standing offer, a million dollars to anybody who could prove to him, without a shadow of a doubt, that God's Word was not God's Word. Now, that's kind of subjective, so nobody really won that thing, but, but still... You know, that's amazing. And the Bible stood the test of time. But here in, in Romans it says, according to the proportion of the faith. And what that means is when something's analogous to something else, it means that it's, it's you know, it, it agrees with it. It's similar to it. And the New Testament always is considered the faith and it's always considered to be synonymous with the collection of previously relevant truth. It doesn't stand on its own. The New Testament doesn't contradict the Old Testament. That wouldn't work. And so Paul here is instructing the the Romans in Romans that these prophetic utterances, these prophecies, must perfectly agree with the faith. And that's what we would say today. If someone is going to claim to have, go back to 1 Thessalonians, a prophecy from God, most of the times they stand up and they'll say things that are not even in accord with Scripture. Or a lot of times you hear and see movies and read books about people, oh, they died and they went to heaven. And here's their experience. They write about their experience in heaven. And when you read about their experience and then you look at what the Bible says about heaven, it's it's like black and white. It's like, whoa, I don't know where you went, pal, but you didn't go to the heaven of the Bible. Because they're not describing that. So genuine prophecy reports God's own revelation of Christ and never deviates from Scripture. That's why a good way to figure out what a verse means when somebody says, well, I don't know what this verse means. How do you you figure that out, Pastor? 
Well, figure out what it doesn't mean. Well, how do you do that? You go to other verses. Go to other verses. We did that when we, we looked at, like, rejoice always, right? Does that mean you can never be sad? If, that, if, that, if it meant that, Jesus would have a problem because Jesus was pretty mixed up in his emotions in the Garden of Gethsemane <laughs> to the point where he was bleeding blood through his sweat. He had a little anxiety going on there, okay? And so what does that mean? Well, we, we, when we studied that, we said, well, it can't mean this, it can't mean this. It must be an attitude of rejoicing. And you can do that with any scripture. And so when it speaks of the written word of God or the spoken word of God, you have basically relevatory prophecies that back in this time they were actually giving and it was limited to the apostolic error because we believe the canon is closed. So I can't come in here to you this morning and say, hey, guess last night, you know, I was, I was uh, shaving and, and all of a sudden I got a revelation from God. And I wrote it down. And so I'm going to read the revelation that God gave me last night. And you know what? I'm going to print them out for you. And I got them on the back table there. And it's, I'm just calling it the book of Stephanus. And you can just put it right after revelation. Just put it. You would say, wait a minute. No. Right? We can't do that. That's adding to the word of God. Well, back then, the Bible wasn't completed yet. So God was actively giving these men, these apostles, fresh revelation. But then you also had non-revelatory gift of prophecy that is permanent. It's not restricted just to the apostolic error. And that's what we do here on Sunday mornings. Whoever stands behind this pulpit, pulpit what do they do? They, they preach. They prophesy. They speak forth the word of God. That's all that it means, proclaiming the word of God. And when Paul preached in Berea, when he was telling Timothy, preach the word, preach the word, when he preached in Berea, guess what the believers were doing? The believers, it says, they examined the scriptures daily to see if what this guy was saying was true. I, I pray that you do this. Don't ever take the word of somebody standing behind a pulpit. Well, they said it. It must be true. No. You know, sometimes I'll misquote verses or my wife always lets me know, you know, oh, pastor, you got to take that out of that, you know, Steve, you got to take that out of the sermon. You said Romans 3.10 when you meant Romans 4.10 or something. I'm like, you know, just relax. It's, it's, a, it's a mistake. God didn't strike me dead. But see, that's a noble response to the word of God. You're saying, okay, he's saying this, but does the Bible say this? Does the Bible really back this up? And prophecy is essential to have the word of God being proclaimed and being taught with authority is important to the health of any church. And that's why Paul urged the Thessalonians not to despise it. Later in his book in 1 Corinthians, when we went through that in chapter 14, look, at, look over there if you want to. Uh, I'll just read this for us. But 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, Pursue love earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's the cream of the crop when it comes to spiritual gifts. Why? Because he tells us, for the one who speaks in a tongue or an unknown language speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, what does he do? He speaks to the people for their upbuilding, their edification, and encouragement, and consolation. So prophecy is always better. It's always to proclaim forth the word of God. It's, it's, it's always a better thing to do that 
Then back in the Corinthian time, when tongues, languages were relevant, God would give somebody the gift of a language, and they would stand up in a service and begin to proclaim the gospel in that language that they did not know. And then guess what? There would be three or four people in that church that just visited that day, and all of a sudden, wow, this guy's speaking in our language, so now we can understand the gospel. That's what the gift of languages or the gift of tongues was. It's not some just mumbo-jumbo that they make it out to be today. So prophecy as a term is actually used to refer to God's word, whether it's written or spoken. Well, how do we get God's word? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 tell us, Peter says, or 2 Peter, excuse me, Peter says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy... Listen, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. How many times have you tried to explain a verse to somebody and say, well, that's your interpretation? You hear that all the time. And I always correct them. I say, no. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. It doesn't matter what you think it says. Who cares? It doesn't matter what I think it says. Who cares? What was the original intent of the author? That's what you want to get at. Once you figure out, what did Paul mean when he said this? And why did he say it this way? And what does the words that he used, why did he use those words? Maybe there's other Greek words that he could have used, but he didn't. Once you understand what Paul meant, then you have the proper interpretation of that verse. So there's not many interpretations of of the Bible. There's only one, the right one. Are there different applications of Scripture? Definitely. You know, when Paul says rejoice always, that may mean something to you that means something totally different to me in way of application. Okay? So we have to understand that. But he says here that no scripture was a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, we didn't come up with this on our own is what Peter's saying. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. He's saying Peter... You know, Paul didn't sit down and go, "Eh, I think I'll write another book to the New Testament. You know, how many do I got now? I want to be the top writer, so I'll write a couple more. No. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they they did what God required them to do. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. It was as if God was literally speaking through those men. And the Bible is a book that, contains the blessing in Revelation 1.3. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy of this book, speaking of the book of Revelation there, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So if you want to receive a blessing, don't despise God's word. Don't despise prophecy. And at the end of the book of Revelation, it concludes, John states that we shouldn't take away, we shouldn't add to the canon of Scripture. He says that very clearly. So Paul's reverence, Paul's attitude about the Bible really came, I believe, from his knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew what it meant to honor the Word of God. Uh, He knew Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it, what, day and night, that you may be careful to do all that was written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. I knew Paul understood that verse. And I'm sure even in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
um, the command to Moses and the Israelites, Deuteronomy 6, verses uh, 6 to 9, he says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, all the time. Not just on Sunday between 10 and 11.30. All the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. In other words, they're right there. You can't can't miss it. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That passage tells us, you know, why we should honor God's word. And I I think I, I put there in your outline a couple things of why we should do that. First, it's authoritative. Secondly, it's infallible. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. It's effective. It's determinative. I mean, think about that. You can look up the, the verses that I put there, and it correlates to that. That's why this book is so special to us. That's why it, it reaps, we reap so many benefits when we are in the Word of God. So Paul tells them, first, don't quench the Holy Spirit, and don't even think about despising God's word. And then thirdly, verse 21, he says, test everything. He says, test everything. The responsibility of when you think of testing something, it's kind of discerning something. Um, today we live in a, in a culture, unfortunately, <clears throat> that has turned against, you could say, intellectualism. They, they deliberately kind of <clears throat> espouse a lot of irrational thought. They yield themselves to experience. They place sensationism above understanding. What matters is how you feel about something, your own personal enjoyment, not your thinking, not what the facts say. And what happens when cultures do this, um, they've only become more pronounced and, and a lot of times real discernment that is needed is thrown by the wayside. And we see that, unfortunately, in a lot of modern evangelical churches. They throw reasoning, they throw discernment out the window. And, you know, because somebody wrote a famous book, it was, well, it must be good. Well, no, what does the book say? Does it align with God's word? Because we're not to despise prophecy, and we don't despise prophecy. That requires us to have discerning spirits. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he was writing this to Timothy, a young pastor, and he began in verse 1, and this describes the day and age we live in. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says... That in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Are we seeing that? Yes. How are they doing it? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. We see that going on all over the place. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4 says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving. 
For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. He says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. He's telling Timothy, make sure you remind him of these things. Be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says. What he's saying is spiritual discernment, being able to discern spiritually truth from error, is essential for the Christian life. And unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of discernment going on in churches today. Because we have a lot of... uh, I remember Amy Grant wrote a song called Fat Little Baby. (laughs) You can look it up. It describes the church today. They just come and eat and gorge themselves and whatever they're willing to give them and and then they go home and, and do the whole thing over another six days. And they're a bunch of fat little babies. They're immature. They don't take the time to read God's word. They don't take the time to grow. They go with whatever's the hottest little button that people are pushing and, oh, this is the greatest new book that came out or whatever. That's why you see so much erroneous teaching going on and things like that in our churches. And this is what Paul here exhorts the Thessalonians. He says, basically, you know what? You need to test everything. Everything. That word test, dokomazo in the original language, it's a common word, and it's really used to examine something. Not just a little glance, but you're actually examining something. If you went out and you were going to buy your wife a ring, a very expensive ring for Christmas. Now, ladies, don't get your hopes up. I don't know what your husband's buying. If he was to do that, he would be a fool to walk into a jewelry store and say, oh, yeah, there's a $5,000 ring. That looks, I guess that's nice. Look, I'll take that. What do you want? You, You want some information on this thing. Is it plastic? Is it real gold? Is that glass or is that a real diamond in there? You want information. Why? Because you know there's people out there that may not want to give you any information because maybe it's a piece of junk and it's not worth $5,000, right? They want to take advantage of you. So we're to examine everything. You're examining something for its authenticity. You're examining something for its genuineness. This word is used when they test metals to make sure that the metal is true. It means to analyze, to, to test, to prove, you could say. That's what I mentioned before um, in Acts 17, 11, It says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What were they doing? They were testing. They were testing Paul's teaching. Probably the greatest apostle that ever lived. And they said, oh, I don't care. I don't care if you saw Christ on a road somewhere and he blinded you. And that's a great story. But you know what? If you're not telling me the truth right now, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. They examined what he taught. Well, today, unfortunately, we live in a post-truth world, one commentator calls it. We live in a world where it's, it's beyond truth. People aren't concerned with the truth anymore. 
We hear this all the time. We hear it in basic things in the news, whether it's denying your own God-given gender. You're a man. You have all the physical appearance of a man. You have the physical anatomy of a man. No, I'm a girl. No, you're not. They're denying the reality. I mean, it's, I know it's not politically correct to say that, but that's the truth. Because the world has said, we don't care about the truth anymore. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 says, we want to suppress the truth that God has revealed to us. We want to push it down like a beach ball in a, in a, in a swimming pool. You're trying to hold it under the water so nobody sees God's truth. Because, to be frank and to be honest, they don't want to deal with God's truth because it, it cramps their sinful lifestyles. They don't want to hear it. So whether you're denying your own God-given gender or you're claiming to be some, we see this sometimes even with politicians, they claim to be a certain racial or ethnic background to get a certain perk. Oh, boy, I mean, people do this all the time. I mean, even in our own government, I mean, you, you, you would have to be blind not to see what's going on on our southern border. You would have to be blind not to see it. But when you ask a government official, sir, wh- whoever, doesn't matter who they are, do you think the, uh, uh, the southern border is secure? Oh, oh yes, it's, it's secure. Like two million people that we don't know are coming into our country. It's, and, oh, no, it's secure. Don't worry about it. We got this. Well, wait till some terrorists get through if they haven't already and start blowing things up and then maybe they'll rethink their border mentality. Or more currently, things like wearing masks and vaccines and all that that stuff. You know, we're told one thing at a certain point and then later on we find out, whoa, this wasn't even the truth. Not to scare anybody, but I'm waiting for the commercials in a couple years. Did you take the vaccine? Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, you're, you're exposed to this and that. And that. Who knows? Because it was untested. We're told one thing and we find out the truth is something different. We have to examine these things. We have to be discerning in these things. It, dis- it entails a distinguishing between, in the context here, between false and what is true between what is true and what is false, between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And and that's what he says there. He says, you know what, discern this in everything. Pas, it it means no exceptions. It includes every issue and idea that might come across your mind as believers. Today we have access to so much information Christians read and, and watch things on TV and on the internet and YouTube and all kinds of things. And, you know, they're not all bad. But you have to be discerning. And without any discernment, what happens is these, these believers are susceptible to really what they call mental chaos. You're just getting bombarded with all this information. And what does that lead to? That leads to spiritual chaos. And I don't think the church is helping out because they're eager to believe everything and anything somebody wants to put out there. And I think that there's a lack of discernment within the body of Christ that's really 
caused our churches to be fighting for their lives. I mean, we see people all around making bad decisions based on faulty reasoning, superficial understanding, shallow knowledge, widespread ignorance, doctrinal confusion, biblical infidelity. All of these have damaged the reputation of the church from within. I mean, we're, we're afraid of persecution. I think maybe a little persecution would help the church at this point in time. It would clear the, <laughs> clear the aisle, so to say, of anybody who's here that maybe shouldn't be. Scripture warns us over and over throughout the entire Bible of those who want to tickle your ears. It speaks of people who teach doctrines of demons, destructive heresies, perverse teaching, myths, commandments of men, speculations, controversial issues, deceitful spirits, worldly fables, false knowledge. Science, so-called empty philosophy, traditions of men, worldly wisdom. These are all corruptions of the Word of God. These are all things that we need to be discerning about. We don't go very far in the New Testament. You get to Matthew chapter 7, and here's what Jesus says right away, right off the, right off the top. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets. Beware of them. Because they come... He says in, to you in sheep's clothing. They don't come into churches saying, hey, I'm a false prophet and I'm going, to spare, I'm going to spread my lies to everybody. No, they come in in sheep's clothing. You think they're sheep. This is what we're finding out when we've done our studies on Wednesday nights in Jude. Jude warns them, hey, there's people that have crept into your church. And they don't have your best interest at heart. You have to be careful. He says they are dressed up as if they're prophets, but inwardly, look at what it says in verse 15, they are ravenous wolves. And he says, well, how will you know them? Verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruits. And then he says something that's very haunting for anyone, any believer, really. Verse 21, he says, and just so you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because people come into churches and they learn the language. They've never been converted, but they learn the language. Oh, I guess they, you know, they don't swear there, they don't smoke, they, they, they don't drink, at least on the campus of the church. So we won't do those things. And then you've got to talk a certain way. You know, I mean, do you go to work and walk into your office and, hey, brother, God bless you. You don't do that. Where do you do that? You do it at church. You do it when you're around believers, Right? I mean, it's just a, a, way, a way of learning. We, we learn how to behave. <clears throat> well, he says, not everyone who's saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And then he gives indication, verse 22, that there's going to be a day when many will say to him personally, they'll be standing before Jesus Christ, and they'll be saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we what, prophesied in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we, he goes on, cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? In other words, God, doesn't that get us a pass to heaven? I mean, I've taught the Bible. I've cast out demons. I've done a lot of mighty works. And besides that, I'm calling you Lord. What more do you want? And he says in verse 23, the Lord says, and then I will declare to them, you know what, pal? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness or wickedness. See, they thought they were doing good things. They were playing the game of church. But Jesus wants everybody to know, you you can't play him. You can play everybody else. You can't play God. And such warnings extend into the book of Acts by the Apostle Paul. We have to have discernment in these things. Because we have people that are rising up that are not teaching what is correct what is in accord with what Scripture says. And you end up with people in churches that are tossed to and fro, Ephesians says, like like waves of the sea. They're, they're, They're carried about by every wind of doctrine. Somebody comes in and says, oh, I have this new doctrine. Oh, great. Oh, wow. And they're deceptive. People like that never come to the elders or the pastor of a church and say, hey, you know what? I know I totally disagree with everything you're teaching here, but I'd like to start a Bible study. What do you think? You think they really do it that way? They don't do it that way. What do they do? They befriend people within the congregation. They win them over emotionally. Then they can share whatever they want with them because they're already taken by their deceptive scheme because there's no discernment. There's no discernment. Well, fourthly, he says there's a responsibility quickly here to hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. Once they examine everything, then we're responsible to hold fast to what we find is good. The word hold fast there means to embrace, to take possession of wholeheartedly. Good has the idea that that, that shares with us that it's it's inherently genuine. It's inherently good. See, people are falling for things that are not good, but they look good. That's what Satan does. It's a bait and switch. But this word, colossus, in the original means, you know what? No, it's true. It's noble. It's right. It doesn't just look pretty. It is. It's genuinely good. Not just on the surface, but inherently good. And when believers in Scripture are encouraged, when they find what is good, they have to embrace it. They have to make it their own. Uh, Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And so many times we blur that line. We, we find the gray area in between. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
If we would just apply what God has already told us to our Christian lives, we would be doing pretty good. But here in verse 22, Paul is warning the Thessalonians to abstain from every form of of evil. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In other words, there's no room in Christianity for reckless faith. There's no room for gullibility. There's no room for just believing whatever anybody says about their experience. You have to be discerning. You have to ask the Lord to give you that power to discern. Because sometimes, most times, you can't do it on your own. Well, lastly here, not only discerning what is good, but he says abstain from every form, every form of evil, abstain from it. Abstain there means to hold oneself away from. In other words, you want to go to something, but you're holding yourself back. Nowhere in Scripture does it permit believers to expose themselves to the influences of what is false or evil. Every time it says, no, stay away from that. And yet we have Christians, naive believers within the church, thinking somehow they can rationalize with these false teachers. And so they're, they're spending an undue amount of time with people, trying to influence their spirituality when they know they're false teachers. It's like when Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, do you invite them in and have coffee and sit down and chit-chat with them? I hope not. We're not supposed to. doesn't mean you're not polite. It doesn't mean you're not courteous. courteous. But you know what? You get to the, the, the brunt of the matter real quick. You just start asking them a little bit about what they think about Jesus Christ and who he is, and you understand real quick they are not believers. They are enemies of Christ. They're teaching a false doctrine along with the Mormons and Catholic Church and everybody else, to be frank. What does Scripture say? It says, stay away from them. It says, even flee them. Flee them. And notice it says, ados, their form, outward appearance. Um, This is something that even looks evil. It's not necessarily talking about evil behavior, it includes that, but it's not necessarily talking about that. It's talking about more, what, what's, what's their ideas saying? Because remember, it's kind of coming out of this idea of don't despise prophecy. Don't despise the word of God. So when you find somebody teaching what's right and what's good, hold on to that. And when you find somebody who's teaching something evil, that's teaching something that's not in accord with God's word, what's he say? Get away from it. I remember after I got saved and I left the Catholic Church and some people said, well, don't you think that, that Christians can stay in the Catholic Church? I said, I guess they could. I don't know why they would. They don't teach the Word of God. They don't believe the doctrines of grace. That's hard for people to hear sometimes. But that's the truth. So why would you want to be part of something that's The opposite of what God's word says. That word evil has the idea of being actively harmful. It's active 
harm. It's malignant. It refers to something that's, that's just actively doing harm. It includes lies. It includes distortions of the truth. It includes moral perversions. It appears in many forms. And this is what Paul was warning them against. And when you teach like this and you, you share what God's word says, I mean, God's word is very black and white. It really is. I mean, sometimes truth can be offensive. Would you agree? Yes. And sometimes what you say can offend people. And I think it's in a good way. Well, don't you, are you afraid of being offensive to people? No, I'm not. I'm really not. I'm worried about being offensive to God. I'm worried about not representing what God says clearly and boldly. See, my responsibility as an elder, as a pastor, as even a Christian, is to be faithful to God. My task is not to dance around your feelings. My task is not to play footsie and navigate people's desires and make everybody feel good. That's not why I'm here. That's not why God has put any Christian here. We are to go out and to boldly proclaim the word of God without apology. Because it's his word, it's not ours. Our mandate is very clear. Preach the word in season and out of season. Whatever that means, it means all the time. Not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesday nights, all the time. Because you have lies coming out of the kingdom of darkness. You have half-truths that poison and kill. And Paul is saying, stay away from that. Stay away from any kind of instruction like that. John MacArthur was asked in an interview, what's the biggest problem facing churches today? And he said, first of all, unconverted people who sit in churches, thinking maybe, for the most part, they're saved. (laughs) And we've created that own mess through the whole user-friendly movement. We invite all these non-believers to church. That's great. I mean, you know, non-Christians can come to church. But the mistake they made was, well, we want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel welcome. So we got to dumb everything down. We can't offend them because if we offend them, they won't come back. And so then all of a sudden you're joining arms with all kinds of people that believe all kinds of things and nobody's standing up for anything and you have a big mess in your church. He said that's the first thing, unbelievers sitting in the pews. Secondly, he said this, a lack of discernment. A lack of discernment. And he said it it focuses on a lot of criticism we get for our spiritual beliefs and things like that. I mean, they don't... They don't criticize other scientists, sciences and things like that. But when it comes to spirituality, well, they put that in a whole different thing. That's okay to criticize. You can't be dogmatic on what you believe. You can't have strong conviction. You can't say there's absolute truth. Everybody knows that's not true. And so religion being the most subjective thing of all these different sciences... It's looked on as anti-intellectual, it's looked on as irrational, it's looked on as emotional, experiential, all these things. All the things that God doesn't want it to be. 
So in a post-truth world that we live in, most of the assaults are going to come on what we think on ideas, on religion. So if you preach and you teach and you're willing to share absolute truth with someone, most likely in today's age they will be highly offended because pragmatism is their driving philosophy. That doesn't get to the end game. That doesn't fill the pews. That doesn't make everybody feel warm and fuzzy inside when they leave church. What people want out of religion today is personal fulfillment. That's what they want. Don't try to change my life. Just show me the the, the way, the path to personal fulfillment or enlightenment. I don't want to hear about your doctrine. Get rid of that. It's inconvenient. Stay silent on anything that offends the unbeliever. And unfortunately, opposition will decrease. And what will increase with opposition is truth. And discernment and salvation and sanctification and holiness and power. When he says everything, he means everything. Today, there's no right. There's no wrong. There's no true. There's no false. Everything is subjective. But guess what? Biblical truth, what God's word says, is not. It is not relative. It is absolute. It's sharp. It's black and white. It tells us the difference between truth and deception, truth and error. In closing, Jay Adams wrote a book called The Call for Discernment. And in the book he says this, In the Bible, where antithesis is so important, discernment, The ability to distinguish God's thoughts and God's ways from the others is essential. And he went on and he wrote this. He says, from the Garden of Eden, listen, with its two trees, one that was allowed, one that was forbidden, to the eternal destiny of the human being in heaven or in hell, the Bible sets forth two and only two ways, God's way in all others. He continues, he says, according to people, accordingly, people are said to be saved or lost. They belong to God's people or the world. There is Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, and Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. There is the narrow way and the, the, the wide way. One leads to eternal life, the other leads to eternal destruction. There are those who are against and those who are with us. There are those who are within and those who are without. There is life and death, truth and falsehood, good and bad, light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's love and hate, spiritual wisdom and the wisdom of the world. God, Christ, God's son, is said, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of many ways, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to my Father but through me. He's the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved. We have to understand we're called to exalt, to lift up God's word, to honor it. And we do that through our study, through our prayer times, through hiding it in our hearts, through memorization, through listening to sermons and coming to church and fellowshipping and talking about spiritual things. Paul wants us to know, don't despise 
God by not dealing properly with the Holy Spirit, but also don't despise his word. Don't despise his prophecies. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to do what your word commands us to do. Lord, that we would not look down upon your word, that we would lift it up. It is the truth for our souls. It's the truth for unbelievers to be converted. There's power in the the words of the gospel. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would enable us as believers to carry your word boldly and proclaim it loudly to a lost and dying generation, a lost and dying world who doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And we know that it's going to be an uphill battle. But, Lord, we know that the words that we speak are true. They're your words. And, Father, if there's any within earshot of this message, whether online or here today, Lord, we pray that they would recognize the truth of God's word. That they would recognize what it says when it says, for all have fallen short of God's glory. That we've all sinned in a myriad of ways. We stand ashamed before a holy God. We aren't able to save ourselves because we are tainted by sin. And yet you have given your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf to cover the payment for our sins. And Lord, I pray for those who may not understand that yet and have not put their faith or trust in Christ that today might be the day where they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Save me from my sin. I want to live my life for you. Help me, Lord. He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere and genuine heart. And so, Father, we thank you for our time of celebration today. We pray that you would bless the fellowship and the food across the way to our bodies as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.